I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Those are verses 30 to 36 of Psalm 69, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, March the 31st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are Today, we are continuing our look at Jeremiah's prophecies in the 22nd chapter, verses 13 to 23. We are in the still in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 41 to 51, and then in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 to 27. <clears throat> so, Jeremiah is continuing to detail God's complaint against his people in this passage. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I'll build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms and cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. So this is a, a lavish kind of a lifestyle. I mean, these are McMansions before they were McMansions. And so, what what there's what it is is he's doing this by oppression, by by not paying the neighbor to help. I mean, we don't know the circumstances that are in mind there, but but it's a, it's a lavish kind of a home here. Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me? Declares the Lord. But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. It's a, a, a powerful word spoken against the king, Jehoiakim, um, who was there at the time, who was Josiah's son. Josiah was a, was a, was a great man and, and one of the greatest reforming kings in the history of Israel. His son, well, not so much. And so what he's doing is comparing this issue of, uh, of these two men and saying, you're not half the man your father was. Your father was a righteous man who pursued righteousness and who, who did all the right things. You, however, are not that sort of man at all. You're an awful man. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, ah, my brother or ah, my sister, they shall not lament excuse me, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, His Majesty, with the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. It's a, certainly a powerful um, invective against the king at this point, but the, 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 the distinction between the two would be so stark that it wouldn't, it wouldn't require very much to see it. And, and it would be comforting as one who had pursued righteousness or who needed the king to pursue righteousness. It would certainly be a good thing for you to hear that this man's end would be ignominious, to say the least. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for your, all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. Such is always the case. Like I said, it was the biggest concern 
that Moses had. If you read the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, what you'll find is is that that Moses' biggest concern was once they got into the land and enjoyed the prosperity of the land, it wouldn't be enough. And they would take credit for getting it themselves, but they would spend all their time pursuing that. It's the reason that as Christians we can uh, sort of appreciate Chick-fil-A, for instance, who, whose commitment is to not being open on Sunday because they want their people to be able to go to, to church, <laughs> to worship the Lord and to have a Sabbath. It, it, it's a, a wonderful thing to see that um, in a time of prosperity, and especially when that company is so prosperous. But, but the problem for Christians always is, is that the more we get, the more we want, or the more we have to work to keep what we have. And so that becomes an enormous problem for us. We, we become like the rich young ruler. We've got so much that we can't imagine life without all the things that we have. And then, you know, new vistas are open to things that we can desire once we get to a, a certain financial place in our lives. And it doesn't mean that any of that is bad, but it certainly is a snare for God's people. And it's a much greater snare than prosperity or sickness or any of those things. You know, I think all of us, whenever we're going through difficult times, become way more intense in our prayer lives, let's say. And so that's what he's saying here is the, that, that I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. The winds shall shepherd all your shepherds, and your leaders go into captivity. Then you'll be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil. O inhabitant of Lebanon, nestled among the cedars, how will you be pitied when pangs come upon you, pain as of a woman in labor? It's hard for us to hear correction when everything's right in our lives. It it was hard for the disciples to to hear Jesus say the things that he did about the rich young ruler and say it's it's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through an eye of a needle. And they're just shocked and appalled that he would say such things because that prosperity is typically a sign of God's favor and blessing in somebody's life. So it, it... becomes a snare for us in that it's very difficult for us to be corrected when we're in those places because, well, everything's good. It must be fine, and it must be fine with the Lord that all is well. And so Jehoiakim refuses to hear it, but he didn't work for the prosperity. His father bequeathed it to him, but his father had prosperity. Why? Because he pursued righteousness and justice in the land, and God blessed that because that's what the leader of the people needs to do. In the gospel today, remember what's happened as Jesus has fed the people, as these pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's fed them in the one place, and then the next day they come and, and they want more. And Jesus says, no, you're not coming because of the sign. You didn't see that, what it points to. Nope, you wanted to make me king, and that's not who I am. And then, so then he gets into an argument with them because they say, oh, if you want to be that person, then you need to show us more signs. And, oh, by the way, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, so you need to do that sign. You need to give us more food. The one thing you said you wouldn't do, now we need you to do it. And so after this, Jesus had said that work, get the food that you don't work for, the, the stuff that doesn't survive. No, I'm the bread of life, and that it will pass on into eternity. So they grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, as they always do, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And it's actually more legitimate in this situation than it is most of the time when they raise this objection to who he is, because he has said, I've come down from heaven. And their response is, well, wait a minute, we know your mother and father. But we've already seen 
in a, in a statement that was made just a couple of days ago in our lessons in chapter 8. Now, I know that's after chapter 6, but, um, but in that, there's an idea that they say we were not conceived in sexual immorality. And the, the implication was that Jesus was because people knew that they had been married or engaged. And then, well, she got pregnant. And initially, Joseph was going to put her away quietly and then changed his mind because, well, an archangel told him to change his mind and to marry her. So that we know that there was questions surrounding his parentage, so it's odd that they continue to raise this issue. When Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, which is exactly what Mary would have said, then they, they grumble and say, you know, hey, we know your mom and dad. What do you mean you came down from heaven? And his response is, do not do not grumble among yourselves. And this goes back, that, that word grumble, uh, uh, grumble there, and grumbling among yourselves, it actually is, it's, it's the same word in, in Greek as the murmuring in the wilderness. And he says, don't do that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, in other words, we can't, of our own volition, go to Jesus. The fact that we know him at all is, is for one simple reason. The Father draws us, and I'll raise him up on the last day. It's said in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So if you truly know my Father, if, if you're one of those people in that number, then you will come to me. So it's a matter of believing. It's a matter of, of your commitment to truth that you come to me. It's proof that you're genuine in your search. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. I Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That's an incredibly powerful statement. I mean, it's just, it, it would take your breath away. If you were standing in the midst of that crowd at that time, questioning Jesus, asking him who he was, where did he come from, and who, who he thought he was, to have him say, I am the bread of life, would take your breath away. Even if you were one of his disciples, that statement would take your breath away. Because it's, it's, it's frightening for anybody to make such a claim. And, and I don't care what you make of that, but, but for anybody to stand up and make that claim begs one thing, right? Well, you're going to have to show us some stuff. We're going to have to keep an eye on you. You're asking me to believe an awful lot. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. That again, it's your fathers ate the, the manna that Abraham or not Moses, you know, was the vehicle through which it was provided by God. But they ate that and they died. But however, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. If I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, again, just these statements are are stunning. I can't imagine what it would be like to hear this guy and be looking at him and thinking, wow, um, we've thought that you were the prophet. We wanted to make you a king. We acknowledge that you are a teacher, a rabbi. 
but you're asking us to believe that you are the bread of life and that eternal life is in you and that you the bread that I give for the life of the world is your flesh what does that even mean I mean it would have been an incredibly confusing statement that he makes here because nobody has in view that Jesus is going to die I mean we know that because the the um, disciples argue with him about it frequently, and then they're confused about statements that he makes that, that have to do with his death and resurrection. They're utterly confused, and so nobody's thinking, this guy's going to die. I mean, the only person who, who sort of pointed towards this was John the Baptist when he points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, that image could certainly be this very image here, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And if he takes away the sin of the world, then he brings life because sin and death are inextricably tied. And that's been Paul's argument through this, through the seventh chapter of uh, Romans and into the eighth, right? So, so that sin and death, he equates completely with one another. They're, They're the same thing. If you sin, you die. If you're in sin, you die. You're dead in your trespasses. So then, brothers, he says, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, de- the deeds of the body, you will live. So the, 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 it's living by the Spirit of God, putting to, to death the deeds of the flesh. And those can be all kinds of things, right? I mean, they can be the, the desire for more and more and more and more of what this world has to offer. It can be sex. It can be um, alcohol. It can be anything. You know, anything that we, we make into an idol, anything which becomes our God, because in, in the sense that it controls our lives, is what Paul's talking about here. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, Jesus says that everyone that believes in him has been given the right to become a child of God. And so what Paul says is the hallmark of a child of God, the proof that you are indeed a child of God, is that you're led by the Spirit of God. You've put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you're now following the the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit in every way in your life. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And and fear and sin can be inextricably tied, right? I mean, they can be—a fear is going to prompt you sometimes to do things that are unethical or that are immoral. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That, that's the change that comes over us, Paul says, in the, in the giving of the Spirit, is, is that we have this spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, where, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, we're like you know, dogs in a, in a kennel who are going to be put to death, and then suddenly we get a reprieve at the last moment, and, and that dog then bonds deeply with the one who saved it. Whether it knew it's, it was saved or not is a, a different matter, but that's who we become. We become like those who, who found ourselves apart and w- with no hope in the world, and then suddenly we become adopted by God as sons and are given his spirit, and that spirit then recognizes our Father. And in love cries out to him. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Because if you're a child in the family, then you also 
um, come into the laws of inheritance. In other words, you're, you're destined to receive an inheritance as a child of a father. You're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Paul's big on saying it's necessary for us to suffer. And, and as I said before, in the uh, first lesson, Jehoiakim was born into prosperity, and he's one of those classic people who were born on third base and believed that they had a triple. You know, you had everything given to you. These are not things you achieved on your own. And so he never had to suffer for things, never had to struggle for anything, never had to do without in order to get something, never had to give anything up in order to get something better. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about two ways of suffering. And partly it's the mortification of the flesh, that, that whereby we die to the flesh in order that we might live to the Spirit. And then also, it, it Paul expects, if you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer for the cause of Christ. He said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In other words, I'm giving up something so insignificant in the vast scheme of things that, that the glory that awaits is so much more that it's almost a joke to consider this suffering. He said, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because remember, the, the creation itself was put into subjugation to man and further... Uh, reduced its productive capacity because of sin in the garden. Because there's a curse on the earth, it will no longer yield its increase to you without the sweat of your brow. So the the, the creation has been subjected, and we see that also in the, in the covering that God provided in the garden after sin, when he provided the skins of animals to Adam and Eve to cover themselves with. And then the, the, after the flood, we see the relationship between man and the, the animals of the world is changed. They become something we can now eat for food. And so the relationship of man to creation is changed and, and creation, he says, groans in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not, un, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So when the sons of God are revealed, then our relationship with creation will change. And we know ultimately and sadly through the book of the Revelation that ultimately creation has to be destroyed in order for a new creation to spring into being. That, that new creation that's fit for the kingdom of God and for those who are truly children of God and made whole through death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the, have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we're not longing for death, we're longing for resurrection <laughs> and the redemption of our bodies in that resurrection. Inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience, and it's this life, this eternal life that Jesus has promised to us, but it's not just eternal life, it's, it's the redemption of our bodies. We get the new body that's not broken by sin, and we get these glorified bodies that we long for because we know that we're in subjection as well. 
under sin. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And then some people will say that that's the, that's the, what it means to pray in the Spirit, is these longings that are too deep for words are being expressed by the Spirit. And so to pray in, in the Spirit, to pray in tongues, as it were, um, it would be that, that it's groanings that are too deep for words. And, and I know that in my own life, in my own prayer life, most of the time when I'm interceding for somebody, if you come up and ask me to pray, typically there's, you know, my flesh wants to pray in a certain way. Certainly I want perfect healing for you. And so I pray in the flesh in that way because I, I do want that. That's what I, everything within me wants. But the Lord might be using that for his glory. And so, so I need to know the distinction between those two things, but I can't know those things. I can't possibly know what he's doing and how he can be glorified in any given situation. And then sometimes so the, the, the Spirit will take over and it'll pray. And I don't, I don't even know what's being said. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that's what I mean by that is the Spirit will intercede according to the will of God, whereas John is praying in the will of John because I don't want my friends to be sick. I don't want my friends to be harmed or hurt or injured or persecuted or suffer in any shape, form, or fashion. Why would I want that? I don't want it for me. Why would I want it for you? So, But then what we need is to pray according to the will of God. And sometimes that, that only comes with those groanings that are too deep for words. But, it, but this suffering that Paul's saying we have to suffer with him, it's, it's absolutely true. We live in a world that is a, a world that's characterized in so many ways by suffering. Whether we see it or not, the, the world is, is suffering. You know, if you've been to Africa, if you've been to certain parts of Africa, certainly, then you can see that suffering. You can see the starvation. You can see the pain. You can see the inability to access quality medical care and all those kinds of things. There is a suffering in the world, and we need to join in that suffering. We need, we need to participate in that. It's what partially makes us human because we can't transcend it. Jesus came not to transcend suffering but to redeem it. And that's where we need to find ourselves, too. We need to find ourselves loving the world and willing to suffer for the world.